There's been a lot of improvements to languages and frameworks over the years. And I really think that is where the industry is getting some of the biggest security lift is just making it really easy for people to do the right thing and making it harder to do the wrong thing. The most important thing that we think about when creating and delivering training is making the training relevant. If you're asking for developers' time, you should be using their time wisely. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today, I have a security team here from a segment, which I'm really excited to talk to and hear about developer-focused security practices. That segment runs. I have Leif Dreisler and Eric Ellett. Thanks for, for coming on the show, Leif and Eric. Yeah, thanks for having us. So before I dig into a variety of topics over here, can I ask you to just give the listeners a little bit of a background about how is it that you rolled and found yourself into in security and into this role? Sure. So it all started for me studying computer science in college, and I started working at a security consulting company while I was still in school and worked there for a couple years after graduating as well. And then from there, I actually was a sales engineer at BugCrowd for a couple of years. And then after leaving BugCrowd, I joined Segment on their application security team about a year and a half ago. Yeah, for me, I was a software developer as a contractor doing uh, like DARPA projects over in DC. And then I followed my dreams to try to start a SDN security company here in the Bay Area, which was way too early. And so I ended up going to Credit Karma as an application security engineer. I then ended up coming over to Segment after Leaf stole me from Credit Karma and <laughs> me to work with him over here. Uh, very cool. So I guess you both came into AppSec, I guess, a couple of companies ago, or sort of you know two, three companies ago. Although specifically AppSec role, it sounds like Leaf, at least for you, and uh, is like it was from an, an SE from sales engineer dealing with security, more in sort of the the bug bounty side, to now switching to AppSec itself. Yeah, so I would definitely put BugCrowd in the application security space, and then most of the security consulting I was doing was application security assessment. So I was doing third-party pen testing. So I've been in some portion of the AppSec space since the beginning of my career. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's like you actually hear about a lot of people that move from the the dark side, if you will, or from a, more the red team, the sort of the pen testing side into the defender side. It's a version of that, you know, because you have a solution that sort of helps people do that type of pen testing, even if, you know, it's not a classic pen test, it's sort of a bug crowd platform. But fundamentally, you go from being the attacker to being the defender still. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about segment security. Where do you sit in the org? What's the team structure? How does it work? Yeah, segment security as a whole like is led by our CISO, Colleen Coolidge. So we have several sub-teams underneath that. So we have like our GRC team, we have our corporate security team, which is focusing on security outside of like production, right? And AWS and, and GCP. And then we have CERT. So when you know inevitably uh, security incidents happen. How do we handle them with grace? And then we have application security, product security, and cloud security. And that's actually under an umbrella of security engineering, which is the team I lead. Leaf's 
technically on application security, but like my team is pretty much uh, very flexible in the sense that you know we kind of work on the problems uh, that make the most sense at a given time, and so it's not unreasonable for like an application engineer, application security engineer specifically, to to work on like cloud security projects or product security, you know, given the the demand in a given domain. So it's a security engineering group. That's the, sort of the title of it, and is that is that title more? Sort of inspired, if you will, by like the people inside of it, or that it's working with engineers. Yeah, I think we just put a title on there just because we didn't want to silo the teams too much. I think it's a little too early for us to do that. You know, granted, we have like five people on our team, and so having like hyper specialization per team is just like it's just too early. And we also believe pretty heavily that to be good at application security or cloud security, it, it requires kind of a foundational understanding in the other domains. And so, you know, it, it's great to just be under security engineering umbrella. And again, like I was mentioning earlier, being able to, you know, transition and put engineers where it makes the most sense given, you know, the, the problems that we're facing at any given time or quarter. Got it. I think part of it also is to capture the idea that we do expect the people on our team to be software engineers at yeah. a certain level. And so software engineering and security engineering aren't that different. Obviously, they're specializations, but we're still writing code. We're still deploying stuff. We're still working directly with software engineers. And I think the security engineering title does a good job both encapsulating that work as well as, as Eric said, kind of creating an umbrella for product security, cloud security, and application security all under one org group. Cool. And does the security engineering group also own and operate these tools, basically like an engineering group inside, like internal tools or the platform storage? How does that work? It really depends on, on the type of tooling, right? Like we're trying to figure out, for example, right now, like where do things such as like the WAF live? Yes, like it, it makes sense for us to be there for like the, the tuning and like to put the rules in and ensure that like we're actually being effective there. But like the operational side, I think our SRE team would feel more comfortable owning that. So it, it just really depends, like per tool, where like things would fall ultimately based off of like who's the best person to handle a given aspect of a given tool. So operationally, for the WAF, it's definitely SRE. Whereas maybe the tuning and ensuring that like you know the rules actually make sense is more on the AppSec side. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess these are the tricky questions, right? And those elements you work. Yeah. It's between sort of the expert center and, and the people maybe dealing with operating tools day to day. Those types of things that always vary. And I think just having those candid conversations with the other directors or the other engineering leaders in the org to figure out like who is best suited to manage, you know, that different aspect of the tool is always typically what we do. Yeah, well, sounds right. So that's actually like a good tee up indeed on you know like how does does your group you know be it security engineering and maybe specifically application security work with the engineering team? It sounds like it's not a part of the same org. What's the kind of high level ratio? Would you say that you have of you know security engineers to engineers on the uh, on the regular R and D side? I think it's roughly about five of us to around a hundred engineers. And then security as a whole, which also includes IT, is about fifteen. Okay, that's actually a pretty good ratio. I mean, as compared to yeah. a lot of companies we talk to, you know, that's a that's sort of a high level of investment for those components. And how is the affiliation? Is it still like one team, application security, you work with the entirety of the engineering organization, or is there some lower level partnering, right, of of working with this group or the other of the engineering org? 
similar to what Eric said earlier, it really just depends quarter to quarter, like what the most high priority projects are for both engineering as well as security. And we get called in to consult on pretty much every project, but we may not have a super hands-on part of it. And then other projects, it may be a formal partnership where we're both contributing equal amounts of work. So an example of that is we added MFA for our customers last quarter. I did almost all of the back-end work. And then an engineer, Kat, from our enterprise core team, she did most of the front-end work. And so that was kind of a shared responsibility delivering that feature. So that, that would be a very high-level involvement from us, but it really varies project to project, quarter to quarter. Yeah, that's awesome. So you kind of choose a specific initiative and then you figure out how is the collaboration going to work and and is that mapped into sprints? Like I guess you it comes back to like software development chunks of work. Yeah, we don't do sprints like holistically as an organization. Each team kind of does their own thing. We do have quarterly OKRs. So before the quarter starts, typically what happens, like I'll reach out to all of the engineering leads and I give our spiel of like, hey, you know, if you have these types of projects, let me know. Um, if you think it's going to be security heavy, maybe we should do like a, what we call a partnership, which is like about 80% FTE time from, from my engineer to help implement or, or just provide support where possible for the duration of the project. We have like more of the consultation style partnerships, which, you know, are typical in most organizations where we'll do like a design review, a threat model, and, and you know, follow up from that threat model and maybe, you know, pen test down the road if, if necessary. So that's that's typically how we break it down quarter to quarter. And, and we actually do another thing, which is we do an embed program. So one of the things that, that Lee talks about definitely in his uh, APSA California talk, which is, you know, we want to get our engineers working with other teams like at least for a quarter, we've been experimenting when this should happen in a given uh, security engineer's lifetime at at segments. So, like we've basically decided, hey, you know, with one of our recent CloudSec engineers, within the first month, he was actually sitting with our tooling team for a quarter and just doing tooling work and, and understanding how that tooling team operates, understanding actually how security processes impact the tooling team. And the goal of that quarter is for them to like work on a capstone project together to ship something that will hopefully benefit both tooling and, and ideally security. And then other engineers like Leaf with the MFA, we actually, that was part of a, an embed as well. So the enterprise core team, we reached out to them ahead of time and said, hey, we really want to get MFA in the app. We know that you've been responsible for kind of the other parts of auth historically. Let's do an embed and, and you know, have Leaf come sit with your team for a quarter and work with you and, and you know, ideally a resource on your end to build this out. And, you know, again, it's, it really helps what I think we coined the term, like walk a mile in the developer's code yeah. um, to really understand what the development process is like, what our processes or our controls look like from the other side, and, and then really bring that back to the team to figure out how we can improve those processes and get a better understanding and empathy for the, the developer. Yeah, it also really helps just understand whatever you're trying to protect. And so if there's ever a question by somebody else on our team or cert or you know somewhere else within engineering and they have questions about what is our authentication flow, I can walk anybody through that whole process because I made so many changes and modifications as we were rewriting an, an older service as well as adding MFA at the same time. And so having that knowledge within the security team 
and not having to rely on an external team to answer questions about something that's as important as authentication, I think is really, really valuable. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy kind of affiliations to to changes that have happened in the DevOps world, and it feels like this was very much a part of it about the sort of the walk a mile in the other team's shoes. But it sounds like it also goes hand in hand with your commentary at the beginning around the team being engineers, you know, because you can only do this if the team is indeed capable of acting as an engineer inside that engineering team. You know, if you bring somebody that doesn't have that sort of sense for what code is, you know, and sort of how do you do that software development process. Then I guess you're not as able to do it. Do you do a little bit of the other way around? Like, have you considered taking an embed from the development team and having them walk a mile in in the security engineer's shoes? You're blowing our cover here because one of the things <laughs> we wanted to do was was get people comfortable with the security embed. I then kind of flipped the script, which is like, hey, how about you, you know, come on the security team and and again, yeah, like exactly what you said, walk a mile in our shoes and maybe get some empathy from. A security perspective and understand what we have to deal with on a cross-functional basis, and, and also just like given that they are developer powerhouses, they can probably build you know some really fancy and pretty tools for us in, in the meantime as well. So, and I think a lot of this is I know a lot of people hate the term DevSecOps, and that's okay. You can hate the term, but I think that the, this is kind of what the goal of DevSecOps should be is similar to DevOps, where you have operations people learning how to code and now everything at segment is infrastructure as code and you have developers that are running their own services built on top of mm-hmm. the building blocks provided to them by the foundational teams at segment i think it's just about becoming a more well-rounded engineer and whether you're a foundation person or a developer or a security person you need to know at least a little bit about all of those other aspects because it's just part of delivering quality software in 2019 is you need to know enough about the whole stack of your application and part of that is knowing how to keep it secure. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think it's similar to how like developers have just adopted reliability in general, right? Yeah. Which, how do we get them to adopt security as, as part of you know how they have adopted reliability over the past few years with the, the services that they've been deploying? So, so let's get philosophical here a little bit, and sort of say, okay, so like we talked about the org and about embed and about sort of exchanging people and getting exposure, uh, maybe a bit about the skill set. How do you operate not from an embed or from a security capabilities built into the product, but these security controls around? What are some of the sort of the principles or the guiding lines that you use when you when you go to consider a new security control, a new security program, and try to get developers to be engaged with it? I think the first thing is. Would this tool actually be used by the developer? I mean, I think answering that question as quickly as possible is the quickest way to de-risk any controller or any vendor that you're going to use. If it's something that has you know an awful UI or awful just usable or awful from a usability perspective, developers aren't going to use that. And ideally, like you, you know, you always want to see if they have an API where you can maybe build or extend the tooling. And so, I, I think really the first thing is just get the developers part of that eval process for any vendor that you're looking at or any control that you're going to to implement because they're ultimately going to be your users at the end of the day and so just like product we don't develop product without having user input we shouldn't be developing security features without our users who are you know the developers input uh, during that process 
you know, that makes tons of sense for me. You know, you're kind of you bring them in, and I love the customer centricity. In this case, the customer being uh, being your developers. I know, uh, Leif, I heard you refer to this notion uh, or like make some quote around making it easy. You know, make it easy for someone to write secure code, and you'll get secure code. How does that manifest? You know, in uh, in the day to day. Yeah. So I think that there's been a lot of improvements to languages and frameworks over the years. And I really think that is where the industry is getting some of the biggest security lift is just making it really easy for people to do the right thing and making it harder to do the wrong thing than doing the right thing. And I think that that isn't a notion that's unique to developers by any standpoint. That's just like humans in general. is like, just make it as easy as possible for people to do (laughs) what the right thing is. And so I think a really great example of this is in React, it's really, really hard to introduce cross-site scripting. In our security training that we give developers, if there is somebody who's working on the front end, if there's one thing that they remember, it's don't use dangerously set inner HTML. And our security org, we very rarely say never do something. Dangerously set inner HTML is one of those things. And yeah. even before any of us got here from uh, the security team, just because our developers had made the choice to use React because it was easy to use and cool and, and Facebook built it and a bunch of other more valid reasons from a development standpoint, we've only had a few instances of cross-site scripting. I think it's like less than five in our app, like ever. Yeah. And compare that to somewhere else that isn't using React and is having to remember to escape user input every single place in the app it's like that is so much harder than just using React and not using dangerously set inner HTML. And so I think that's a, a really good example of an instance where it's just been very easy to write good code. Yeah, and I guess we're all humans, eh? We're uh, we're lazy. <laughs> At the end of the day, the the path of uh, of least resistance is the one that's going to prevail. So might as well make that the secure path. Yeah, we also kind of adopted ourselves. I mean, at least the dangerously set inner HTML. I love the fact that like. Dangerous is in the name. Like <laughs> we have, uh, we use Terraform for most of our infrastructure here at Segment, including like S3 buckets and like our public bucket module is like dangerously public S3 bucket. Right? And so, like people <laughs> when they're using that, they're like, okay, maybe I should think about this a little bit more. And we try to adopt that where possible, just because I think it does definitely send a signal as well. Yeah, it definitely makes somebody think twice about like. Is this actually what I want to do? Yeah. And it, sometimes yeah. it is. Like sometimes it does make sense to have a bucket be public, and we have, you know, just static assets or something like that that's just getting loaded on our public web page. But anybody who even remotely follows Infosec News knows that many times the bucket should not have been public. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think any signal that you can send to like a developer who's probably done like the fifteenth code review that day, you know, or looking at something and they see something like dangerous, like oh. Oh, maybe this is something I should actually pay attention to a little bit more versus, hey, this is just an S3 resource that you know they're using. It also makes it a lot easier for a developer who's more junior. And you know, we don't expect every developer to be a security expert. We expect them to try and we expect them to ask more senior people on their team or people from our team for help. But having flags like this, like even somebody who's this is might be their first software engineering job. They can see that something says dangerous, and yep. I think that'll even trigger something for a brand new dev. Like, hey, maybe I don't want to be using something dangerous. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, switching kind of you know maybe into education. You know, when we talk about sort of making security experts out of these developers, and you know, at the end of the day, there's only 
there's only so much you know we, we we can become experts in you know developers are heavily overwhelmed today with information i know you've invested a fair bit in training and educating those developers on the important parts of of security tell us a bit about this you know how do you go about building some of these security perspectives uh, in your dev teams sure so the most important thing that we think about when creating and delivering training is making the training relevant and so if you're asking for developers time you should be using their time wisely and so when developers start at segment they go through a two-part training the first part is thinking like an attacker and the second part is secure code review and in the thinking like an attacker training all of the examples that we talk about are things that we've had submitted to our bug bounty program or things that we've gotten in pen test reports or things that we've found internally. And so every single example that we show them is something that was a vulnerability that was previously in segment. And it's a lot easier to get a developer to care about a vulnerability when you can say, hey, this feature that you're, you're probably familiar with, this was a previous vulnerability, this was the impact, this is what the fix looked like versus talking about a cross-site request forgery example from a bank where you're transferring money and the developer might think, like, I don't work at a bank, like, why do I care about this? Yeah. It just makes it a lot more tangible if you actually just have all of your examples come from stuff that is similar to where they're working. And then the follow-up to that is we teach them how to use Burp Suite with the OWASP Juice Shop project, which is our favorite vulnerable web app because... It's written in Node and Angular, and it's a single-page app. And you know the tech stack isn't exactly the same as Segment, but it's pretty close. It's definitely close enough that when we show them the the architecture diagram, it's, developers understand like, hey, this is like pretty close mm-hmm. to, to what Segment looks like. And then part two, the secure code review training. One of our coworkers, David, he built a couple small, intentionally vulnerable blocks of code that actually run and create a Hawaiian shirt store. And then we ask the developers to review the code and identify vulnerabilities based off of the training that we've given them that day. And again, all of that is React, Node, or Go, which is what we use to build Segment. And so whether they're a back-end engineer or a front engineer, there should be some part of that code review that is in a language that they're familiar with based off their time at Segment. So in the thinking like an attacker training, we also want it to be competitive in a sense. So like after we go through the theory and, and examples of each type of vulnerability, then we get them smart with burp suite and, and hitting um, juice shop. We actually have them go after the specific vulnerabilities that we went over. And on the whiteboard, we have those vulnerabilities, like at least the names of them enumerated, and we kind of treat them as flags. And when people capture them, like the person that's giving the training, like they'll have to show it to them and they'll write their name up on the board. And it really gets people in like a competitive mode. Like we've had people stay after the training was over, <laughs> like what, a half hour or yeah. like 45 minutes still trying to exploit, you know, the last flag because they were just so engaged in the training. And, you know, that's definitely a, a huge positive signal on our end that uh, people are really taking something away from it. Yeah, it's also just a great way to meet new developers. So we try and give this training within somebody's first month or so of them getting the segment. And for a lot of these developers, this might be their first interaction with us as a security team. It might be their first interaction with the security team ever. Maybe this is their first job or maybe their their previous company didn't have a security team. 
And so we think it's really important that they have a positive experience with us from day one, because a lot of how we're effective as a security team is relying on developers letting us know when they need help. And so they're the ones that are letting us know that, hey, I need a design review or, hey, maybe I've identified something and I'm not sure if this is a vulnerability or not, but I just wanted to let somebody know. None of that stuff works and you can't rely on that if you don't have the kind of relationship where developers are encouraged to come and talk to the security team. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Like I absolutely love the idea of using code that you relate to, you know, and like the fact that it's your that's vulnerabilities, historical vulnerabilities is uh is sort of especially resourceful here and uh, and innovative probably kind of required a good chunk of effort, right? Because you have to sort of sift through those and uh, explain them as well in a way that is manageable. But I guess on the flip side, you know, you get something that is much more much more attached, much more relatable to their surrounding. And I also love how it's all coming together around, you know, I think a lot of the Overlaying theme here is around good interaction, good healthy people interaction. You know whether it's the embed, whether it's the skill set, whether it's you know that good initial relationship with them. You know very much about positive security, and uh, unfortunately not not yet super prevalent in our uh, in our industry of security. I do think that is changing. I think that historically that probably hasn't been super common, but I think there's kind of a, a new wave of security teams that understand like this is really the only way to get stuff done, especially in an instance where you're at a company with a microservices architecture and every developer is pushing code tens of times per day. It's like you can't review every single pull request. Like we're not pair programming with every single developer. We just have to give them the training and resources and teach them security judgment, which is a term that I stole from a Netflix presentation a couple of years ago at AppSec California that I just absolutely love. And it's just the idea that, you know, even if you're not a security expert, you should at least know when something looks off or, you know, maybe something doesn't seem like the right way to be doing whatever you're trying to accomplish and just let us know. And we're always available to, to come and help out. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm fortunate enough to run this podcast and have, you know, See some, you know, like yourselves, you know, people that are at the forefront here and talk about it. I very much hope that this is a trend, you know, versus an echo chamber. But I think over time, it's it's a must, as you point out, right? Software is accelerating too much and getting too complex for uh, for anybody from outside to secure it. I guess on that note, you know, we talked about education, we talked about engagement with the team. When you talk about this notion of positive, I know you've done some things to celebrate successes. Can you give us a couple of examples of when somebody does? A good thing around security. How do they uh, have some stickers? You know, we. Uh, I remember some mention of a crown. Yeah, um, the stickers actually come out as part of our training. So when you complete the training, we have like this hackerman sticker that is like some the, this online meme that we use quite a bit in the training itself, so that people can kind of show like, hey, I you know I did the the training. Another thing that we've started, and I'm actually presenting at OWASP next month at Uber, I think, on, which is uh, the leaderboard. So like, it's effectively this gamification platform that we built that you know celebrates those small wins that, that people have. So like, when people come to you and say, hey, I think I noticed this issue, or I, I noticed maybe some PII in this log, how do we recognize those small wins, right? And so we, this leaderboard is basically this UI. I, I really got enticed by Halo 2 and, and kind of the 
notion of like a matchmaking back when I was in, I think, high school or middle school and like how people can be, you know, ranked. And so basically what happens is when you do these small things, we'll recognize you and you like gain experience points. So everyone starts off at level one and you'll get like, depending on the type of thing that they've done, you'll get like 15 experience points or 25 experience points. And when you get a hundred, you go to level two and it posts like all the great things that people do every Friday in our security Slack channel so that, you know, people, uh, not just the people that were part of that interaction, like the security team and the developer, but, you know, even like the VP or the CTO or, or people that are like higher up can say, you know, hey, this individual has, uh, you know, done all of these great things this past week or like this past month. Uh, you'll just see like that recognition happening in the security channel overall. That's awesome. What types of actions do they uh, do they get points for? <laughs> so, like, we have vulnerability management program here, like most people, and we rate our vulnerabilities. So, like, if you find a P one, we'll give you a hundred points, right? Like, if you go out and actually find these things, it's like a hundred. So that like P one is like the worst type of vulnerability. If you fix it, we give you fifty because fixing could have been because we assigned you a vulnerability to fix. But yeah. like, people that are out there proactively finding these things, like we give you a hundred, and that's like automatic level up, or you know, if they just we have a kind of a catch-all, like one above and beyond for security. So if they ask someone to badge in, uh, this isn't even just for engineers. Like our salespeople are on this board, and you know that's typically because they've asked someone to badge in that was you know maybe trying to tailgate. And uh, and another thing that we we've done with this is also open it up to other people. So like this is not just security giving these points. Like we're not always around to watch people tailgate. So we've had other people that are not security engineers or, or on the security team, you know, submit these points through the Slack command that we have. And so, you know, we were just really trying to build a culture of people recognizing each other for, you know, doing awesome security things. That's awesome. I still think stickers are, are good as well, even if they're just from the training. You know, I think you also showcase that it's important, but I very much love the leaderboard and those results. Before we're sort of getting to the tail end of the of the podcast, can you just Kind of rattle off a little bit of some of the uh, tools of choice that you have today in your in your stack for people to uh, consider. Sure. So, as listeners of the podcast might guess, we are SNCC customers, and I think <laughs> the uh, the way that we introduce SNCC does kind of do a good job of of encapsulating a bunch of the stuff that we've talked about. And so, when we are evaluating SNCC, as Eric said earlier, any tool that we buy, we want developers to be able to use because. We want them to be able to take control of the security of their services. And so when we were doing our evaluation of SNCC, we partnered up with our growth team to integrate it with some of their repositories and get feedback on the tool, you know, accuracy, usability, et cetera. And once they said, hey, this looks pretty good, we added it to a couple other repositories. And then as part of our introduction to the rest of the engineering team, we actually, at all hands, had them had engineers write down on a piece of paper how many total JavaScript libraries they thought we might be including across all of our repositories. And the person that was the closest, we actually gave them a crown at our engineering all hands. So, yeah, Snake is definitely one of the tools that we rely on. That's how we introduced it. We also use Detectify for our DAS scanning. I think the DAS scanning market is, it can be challenging to find a tool that actually can log into a single page app, like React application, where the DOM's just doing yeah, crazy things. Yeah. yeah. For SaaS, we're actually looking at SEML right now, 
we have been using, uh, so Coinbase created this, this awesome tool or concept, which is called Salus, which is a way to like deploy a container to each CI. Like if you're using Circle, you can create a new job that will you know, uh, spin up a separate container that would be like the Salus container. And from there, like you can, from a central location, inject various different linters or, or other tools that you want to run that will do some static analysis. But now we're looking at uh, something like Simul as well to help supplement. And they, they also have like a pretty good developer story. I, I think they, you know, I love the fact that they have like a query language for their SaaS product and, and people that aren't just security folk can, can go and use it to, to find other types of problems that aren't just security related. So we're looking at them. As I alluded to earlier, we use Bug Crowd for our bug bounty program. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a combination of tools and services, but I think running a bug bounty program is pretty important just to show researchers like, hey, if you do find something, we're not going to sue you, we're going to pay you. So, you know, please be responsible and tell us about anything that you might find. We're looking at Asset Note. That's another tool that we're evaluating. They're in the like asset discovery space. So, something that will go out and look for internet facing assets and, and try a variety of tools and techniques from the bug bounty world. So some of the co-founders of Asset Note were really successful bug bounty hunters. So it'll scan your external resources and see, okay, hey, can we do subdomain takeovers or things like that? So that's a tool that that we're pretty excited to to use in the future. Very cool. Well thanks for for sharing. I mean I think those uh that's very useful to sort of hear the vetted set of tools around. So I guess before I uh, I let you go here, I like to ask all of my guests one last question, which is if you have one pet peeve or key advice that you would like to give a team that is looking to level up their security caliber, what would that be? I don't really know if it's a pet peeve, and I think it should be relatively obvious from the rest of the podcast, but be friends with people. People are way more likely to do the things that you need them to do if they like you. And so much of security revolves around getting other teams to do work because they have domain expertise that you don't and you need their help to improve the security posture of your company. And so do everything you can to build really great relationships inside of your organization. Yeah, I think the one thing is definitely try to do the investment in building out quality where you have the most face time. So like with your engineers, so like training, for example, it's paid us back in spades, I think, the amount of value we've gotten out of it. Yes, like we could have gone down like the automated route or like a video route, but you know, the amount of time that we have spent making that training awesome has definitely outweighed the amount of time we would have had spent dealing with the vulnerabilities or issues that would have came up if we didn't spend that time. So cool. This is also a good time to mention that if you want to join this very forward-looking team here, you can check out some of the job openings that this segment team has on segment.com slash jobs, you know, especially in the San Francisco area, but it seems like across the US as well. So thanks a lot, Leif and Eric, for coming on the show. This was excellent. Yeah, thanks for having us. And uh, thanks for everybody tuning in to the show and hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.